All right, Alex, uh, there were there was a lot to cover in the last uh, couple of weeks, but I actually think we need to throw throw it all out and do a show today dedicated to, you know, this this campus speech stuff that's going around. I just I just feel like there hasn't been enough attention and debate given right. to these really important issues about what's happening on, on campus, and in particular what three university presidents said in front of Congress. I feel yes. like that just no one's talking about it enough. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. It is I feel like it's a media blackout. The media right. is censoring coverage of the presidents from three universities that represent the 0.1% of the college population. Yeah, exactly. I think I saw it go below the fold at some point this week, which is just outrageous. Uh, Incredible. I mean, there was a moment in which the New York Times, the entire page was campus speech, but I I think that's not enough. I think every day, all we should do is while people are dying around the world in actual conflict, all we should do is talk about what 19-year-olds are doing. Because 19-year-olds have never been expected to say dumb things when they're young and then, you know, grow up a little bit and be immature. It's it's just, you know, it is the most important thing in the world right now. Not what the world's richest man does with his speech platform. The the real problem is the 19-year-olds. I'm so glad we are on the same same page about this. So let's let's dig in. And welcome to Moderated Content's stochastically released, slightly random and not at all comprehensive news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dueck, and Alex Stamos. Alex, actually in real important, well, I mean, I don't want to undermine the importance of the university president's testimony, but talking about other stuff that was happening on the Hill in the last couple of weeks, uh, you paid a visit there uh, yourself. Uh, how, yes. did, how did it go? <laughs> it went better for me than it went for the, <laughs> the, 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 the three bar, presidents. Glad to hear it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I did practice what to do if somebody asked me about genocide. Is genocide bad? And, you know, just like with Ghostbusters, if somebody asks you if you're God, you say yes. So if somebody asks you if genocide is bad, you say yes, right? That that's that that is the answer. Yes, genocide is bad, and and so yes, I, I actually got to testify in front of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Subcommittee of House Homeland Security. The chairman is Andrew Garbarino, ranking members Eric Swalwell, and the two of them put together, I think, a really good hearing on how is AI going to affect cybersecurity and and what is the regulatory environment that should be around it. I was with some really distinguished other panelists uh, from a variety of of, of companies. Uh, and it was a great conversation, you know, lots of interesting uh, tidbits. You know, the entire panel was both worried about what AI could do, but also really positive that kind of the status quo of where we are in cybersecurity is quite poor. And all of us agreed that the appropriate uh, application of AI could really help with the, the issues we're dealing with right now and especially kind of the the workforce gap. And I got to drop my my hottest of hot takes in Congress, which had a surprising amount of support, which is I, I do believe we're at the time at which we have to ban all ransomware payments. Um, I've been dealing with three ransomware events over the last month. Uh, which is a lot of fun while also teaching and giving my final and, and everything else uh, that I've been doing. Um, and, you know, the the administration did something that I thought was appropriate at the time, but it just hasn't worked out, which is they put sanctions in place of a number of the worst ransomware actors. But these groups are like super amorphous. They change their names, they change their Bitcoin accounts. And so all that's done is created more billable hours for outside counsel to write you a memo saying, we don't think the people you're paying are sanctioned. And then you pay anyway. And we're at over $2 billion a year of money going flowing from American businesses to these professional cyber terrorists, effectively. And I just think it's wow. it's time for, as a society, us as a society, we're not going to pay anymore, which is going to be rough. Um, uh, Congresswoman Lee of Florida read from something I, I wrote saying that there would be six months of carnage if we do such a ban, and that's absolutely true. But I think compared to the status quo, that's probably what we're just going to have to accept. 
and so it was great. It was it was a great bipartisan group. I think Gabaruno and Swalwell worked together really well. It's just nice to see Congress be actual and functional. Yeah, you keep bringing us these positive stories of your visits to the Hill, um, which I don't quite know what to do with. Um, but it's uh, it's it's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it doesn't mean anything's actually going to happen because obviously, like you've right. It, let's not get too positive. <laughs> well, it just also. I, Whenever I do these meetings, it helps remind you that like the vast majority of congressional activity is a bipartisan, thoughtful, like that day, mm-hmm. there are a dozen hearings in a dozen different places where there, people are working on real stuff. But then what makes CNN, what makes Fox News was, you know, the same week that you've got the Hunter Biden stuff happening, you've got impeachment. Right. And it, it really does make me sad as for, you know, maybe Congress every once in a while, they could declare one month a year where they just legislate. And they they ignore all the other stuff like hey for this month we'll we'll do and then eleven other months you can go and 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 grab headlines but for a month that you work because like you get so much done if you just spent one month a year. Let's, I love we, the idea that no. the legislative body st- spending one month a year uh, actually legislating would be an increase and in improvement uh, based on uh, based on what they're what they're currently doing. So yeah, no, that uh, it's it's a pleasant, refreshing thing to hear. Going from your cybersecurity work to your information oper- operations work, um, the Washington Post reported this week that following controversy about its use of covert information operations. Um, the American uh, government has cut back on this kind of activity, eliminating dozens of false personas that has created in recent years and is now requiring uh, sign-off by senior Pentagon officials in order to engage in this kind of activity. Now, Alex, this grows out of some previous work of yours and uh, a, a report that you uh, originally uh, helped put together at uh, the Stanford Internet Observatory. So can you tell us a little bit about the background on what this new development is? Yeah. So way back in August of 2022, my colleagues at the Sanford Internet Observatory, building upon work from uh, the then Twitter threat intel team, rest in peace, and the meta threat intel team analyzed what turned out to be a Pentagon disinformation campaign aimed around the world, especially in the Middle East and Central Asia. This was a really crappy influence op. It was like one of the, that we call entitled our report, which we wrote uh, jointly with our friends at Graphica, Unheard Voice. Right. Because the uh, it turns out our first blog post about this campaign got more people reading it than any of the content that was posted by this multi-year campaign, which we were able to attribute of people who we thought were related to the U.S. government, but we couldn't get it really finely grained. And then Ellen Nakashima at the Washington Post took our work and then started doing, you know, probably figured out by brunch because she just knows every single person in D.C., makes a bunch of phone calls and finds out that it's like defense contractors working you know, for the, the, the Pentagon with contracts reaching all the way back to the Bush administration. Um, So this was like a very old kind of this influence op idea, not doing the exact same thing. It had changed, but that like this was a long process that started under the Bush administration that was continued under Obama and Trump of uh, Pentagon influence operations. And kind of our position here was, this was just not an appropriate thing. It, this was a Russian-style disinformation campaign, right? So fake accounts pretending to be people who live in these countries saying things that, in this case, were pro-American or, or pro-American foreign policy. And we thought that was a totally inappropriate thing for a democracy to do, to go create fake personas uh, to lie overseas. Um, and especially because it also didn't work, right? So it's like, if you wanted to make some kind of pragma- pragmatic argument that, oh, it's better than you know seeding the field, all we did was create the the space to say that this is an appropriate thing for Russia and China and Iran to do without af- having any actual positive impact. And so fortunately, what our report and uh, Ellen Nakashima's reporting and the work of Twitter and Meta 
led to the Pentagon doing this big review. And like you said, um, they've decided that there's going to be a bunch more controls in place. Apparently this caught like a lot of people by surprise. They had no idea this was going on. This is just one of those programs, which is like just goes back to kind of a general problem is that we, you know, at 800 something billion dollars a year in defense spending that a program is created. And then there's defense contractors whose job it is to do everything they can to keep that spigot going. So they'll just go run with it. And then it, you know, policymakers are not deciding that. And that was, it looks like Colin Cowell, who was at the time the undersecretary of defense for policy run, ran that. And he is our colleague. He has now returned back to Stanford. So it was like, if you want to call that a Stanford conspiracy to silence the Pentagon, to censor the Pentagon's influence operations, then you can actually pin that on Stanford because it was both our report and then a Stanford professor who was spending time at the Pentagon who decided that the, the United States government should not do influence operations like this. Yeah. So I couldn't agree with you more that it's like an inappropriate thing to be doing and just sort of undermines trust and credibility in the United States um, and and to, to be conducting these kinds of covert operations. The, you know, the Washington Post reporting was a little bit light on on the kinds of oversight and scrutiny that's going to be given to these uh, operations. You didn't say that they're going to be shut down completely. Um, and so there is a little bit of this, like, just trust us kind of sense to what's going to be happening moving forward. And so, you know, I- I'm going to be curious to see. I mean, I don't know, like you said, RIP, Twitter, uh, trust and safety team that might be detecting these kinds of things going forward. So, But to the extent that we do still see uh, what the government does, what the military does, that'll be interesting uh, as to how much of this is just, you know, an announcement. Uh, followed by maybe not so much substantive change or actually a substantive reorientation. Yeah. So one of the interesting discussions that I, some side discussions that I heard during this period was the people in the Pentagon and in the intelligence community want to differentiate between influence operations that are trying to influence people and fake accounts to back up human intelligence. Like one of the problems we have in the West is that if you're a business person who is traveling to China to do business, you will have your high school track records and your college Mm -hmm. Instagram account. And you'll have this huge persona. And so that we end up in this place that like versus our adversaries where social media use is is less and such or tightly controlled that Mm -hmm. anybody who shows up in a foreign country, who's actually a CIA agent and operating under a false identity needs to have this whole backfilled backstory. And so that that is something that they want to maintain while also not then going and then using that to lie. So it's just like a really kind of subtle differentiation, but I think a reasonable one. But I think that's also why we're not hearing details here is that effectively the rules are probably, oh, if you're doing this so that you can go spy in the way that countries have spied each other forever, but in the 21st century, that's fine. But you're not allowed to run Russian style influence ops. I think that would be a reasonable place. But you know, again, like you said, there, there isn't enough transparency here. And unfortunately, Congress hasn't really done anything on this space either. It's just the Pentagon making these decisions on their own. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. All right. Over to our threads corner for the week. Excellent. Such a satisfying sound. Um, all right. This was a big week. It's me for actually just ripping my shirt. Everyone's not telling you that. This has become a very expensive podcast. <laughs> That's right. One shirt per episode. This was a big week for threads. Uh, our, our little platforms, they, they grow up so fast. The threads announced that it's uh, expanding its fact checking program uh, to the platform next year so that uh, third party fact checking partners will be able to rate content on threads, which it, they haven't been able to so far, um, which is, I think, the sign of the 
platform maturing. That is one of those things that we have seen over the past few years, mature platforms taking trust and safety seriously, rolling out these kinds of programs uh, as the whole um, sort of uh, compromise between not being the arbiters of truth themselves, but also not being a complete hotbed of uh, a a wash with false political content. So it'll be interesting to see uh, the impacts of that. Uh, But more importantly, the the platform also launched in Europe uh, in the last couple of days. And even even more importantly, perhaps, uh, it started testing integration with ActivityPub. Now, Alex, this was something that we had talked about quite a lot on on this podcast before. uh, And you made a pretty bold prediction um, that you didn't think that Threads would ever uh, end up doing this and end up integrating with the Fediverse. So I'm curious, did this, this catch you by surprise? And what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it looks like they're going for it. I, I thought that the trust and safety issues would be too big, but they're they're going for it. Now, they haven't done the hard part yet. It is easy to push content out from threads. It's effectively the same as like having an RSS feed, right? It does not create any trust and safety risk. There are maybe privacy issues, but apparently, you know, they feel like they've gone past that since they, they did launch in Europe at the same time. So that, you know, having the APIs and people knowing that their content is available on ActivityPub and the fact that then you know, Meta has no capability to pull content back or delete it, which is always a big thing under GDPR. I guess they've, my expectation is they have a letter from the the Irish DPA uh, and perhaps Canol and a couple other ones saying that that's fine. But yeah, it'll be the big, the big question will be the next step when they allow it to flow in. Just, you know, none of the fundamentals have changed. If, if content is flowing into threads from other Mastodon instances, one, those Mastodon instances are not doing basic trust and safety things necessarily. You know, SIO, we put out a report about the amount of CSAM on the, Met, on the Fediverse, and it's bad because if you, it's just, there's no options. Even if you're the best, most thoughtful instance admin, you have very little options here. There are people who are working on that. One of our suggestions was for Meta to invest in those open source options for people. So maybe there'll be some direction there. But then just on normal trust and safety, you don't get IP addresses and email addresses and all the metadata that's really important for anti-spam detection and fake account detection and such. So it will be fascinating to see whether or not incoming Fediverse content is first class or some kind of second class. And that's how they they deal with it. Just to clarify, like what the current situation is, is that you can now on Mastodon follow Threads users and see Threads posts start appearing uh, in your Mastodon feed, but they haven't enabled the reverse. Such as that, that is to say that on Threads, you can't go and find a Mastodon user um, and have that content appearing in your feed. So that's a broadcast yeah. model, which seems to be it's like- It's the opposite it, of the Hotel California, right? Right. You, 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 can, you can't check out, but you can always leave. Yes. Right. Right. So, I mean, that seems to be like good for Meta, right? In that, like, people on the the platform just get greater reach, and um, and 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 like you say, I mean, perhaps there's this view that the trust and safety problems are are not theirs if they are just broadcasting out, but there is this sign- much more uh, significant issue when they have all of these users who aren't even on their platform, uh, their content coming into the feeds of the users who are on their platform. Uh, that's what's going to be difficult to see. I mean, there was also a bunch of people uh, threading, posting about how a bunch of Mastodon servers have been blocking threads uh, content coming in. I, I don't know if you um, you were following that at all, Alex, but it seems yeah. somewhat ironic that the original sort of Fediverse platform um, has been sort of uh, disabling this kind of Fediverse um, functionality. Yeah, I mean, that's up to each instance admin, and I think it's not going to work to their best interest, but you know, that's that's up to instance admins. But you, what you also saw was a bunch of people changing instances because they want to be able to follow threads content. What I also did see is people getting the trust and safety thing backwards of, oh my God, people are blocking threads because so much bad stuff's going to flow out right when it's the opposite in fact i mean on the opposite is is i think 
the hard part that's going to happen here is that once Meta starts pulling in stuff and in, in detecting CSAM, they will be filing cyber tip line reports. They are effectively calling the cops on instance admins um, who are many in violation of 2258A because they are if they're taking CSAM down, they're not reporting it. And so again, I think like that's something Meta is going to have to. But yes, there's been discussions of that and it's just empirically wrong. Sorry. <laughs> but like, and you know, I've been trying to participate in a couple of those conversations and then you just end up getting blocked, which is fine. People can block me, but I'm still right. <laughs> right. And, you know, there was this conversation about, yes, this is the easy part, uh, but Adam Masseri has been posting that give us time. They are intending uh, to, to open up the, the full functionality on incoming as well. So we will we will wait and see and we will see how long that takes and what that looks like. But there you go. The social media uh, ecosystem really is changing, I think, in, in pretty significant ways. Um, all right. Over to the TikTok TikTok for the week. I have a bugbear about ridiculous statistics, so I just want to pull this one up because it got a bit of a bit of attention. During the most recent Republican primary debate, uh, Nikki Haley said, for every 30 minutes that someone watches TikTok every day, they become 17% more anti-Semitic, more pro-Hamas based on doing that, which is an amazing, uh, an amazing statistic. Uh, right. Just right, I, like, based upon average TikTok usage, that effectively, like, that means we must have 10 million actual like members of of the national <laughs> right. socialist party running around right because it's I, like I, if you're becoming 70 percent every half hour then just like a normal teenager's use of tiktok they are 100 percent anti-semitic by the end the of the charts. day yeah a thousand percent i don't even know um just cannot measure it i i want to see what the uh what the blood test uh is that they do to get like the oh this person is 56.7 percent anti-semitic at this current moment okay so it's a nonsense statistic uh and it highlights the, the ridiculousness of a lot of these debates that are happening around this platform uh, and just in general, obviously. Uh, the actual statistic, the actual study was that spending at least 30 minutes a day on TikTok increases the chances uh, a respondent holds anti-Semitic or anti-Israel views by 17%. Or at least that was what uh, someone was uh, tweeting. Uh, Semaphore has a great article about this that I'm going to uh, post in the show notes about how uh, the the analysis itself is pretty, uh, pretty sloppy. Of course, equ- equating anti-Israel views with anti-Semitic views um, is not... Um, <laughs> You know, is going to vastly uh, increase increase that statistic uh, at a time when many young people on TikTok, as we've discussed on this platform before, you know, are expressing political views about what's going on in the ongoing uh, uh, war in Gaza that might be classed as anti-Israel, but not necessarily anti-Semitic. And of course, the other important thing here is that correlation is not causation. Um, the fact right. that these people who are on TikTok uh, are more likely to hold these views uh, does not in any way suggest that TikTok is causing those views. <laughs> no, it's just, I mean, it's just a survey of, young people are more anti-Israel, which like you don't need a survey right. <laughs> for. It, it, that's just the pro- the proxy for that is, do you use TikTok? Is the right. proxy for like, is effectively has a 1.0 correlation with asking somebody what if they're if they're less than 30 years old. Right. Right. Which is ridiculous um, and, and wouldn't be a problem, except that this, of course, is being weaponized um, yes. in service of arguments to to try and, and ban uh, the platform entirely. And then also doesn't appro- it doesn't approach the actual issue, which is like, you know, anti-Semitism on the young people for which there's right. there's a bunch of probably complicated drivers here. Um, mm-hmm. But but this does not say that it's TikTok for sure. Right. So uh, just a, a wonderful mishmash there. Uh, well done, Nikki Haley. On the TikTok ban front. Wait, so you don't you don't turn to the Republican debates for the, <laughs> the most up to date quantitative social science research? Is, you that, know, is that what uh, you're telling me? Uh, no, uh, it's, uh, the, the, the Republican debates are filtering Twitter, a, a random tweet uh, through um, th- through uh, sound bites is not exactly uh, cutting edge, cutting edge research. No, it doesn't replace a graduate seminar uh, in, in this space. Yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah. All right. On the TikTok ban front. 
we have a few pieces of news. The first is uh, that a U.S. judge uh, on Monday upheld Texas's ban on state employees, uh, including public university employees, using TikTok on their state-owned devices. Um, this was a challenge brought by the, our friends at the Knight First Amendment Institute at the at the Texas uh, public employee ban. Um, I have to say, I think the reasoning here is pretty surprising and pretty disappointing. It held uh, that the, the judge held that this is not a restriction on public employee speech at all because the employees can go and use TikTok on uh, their own personal devices and uh, are free to uh, use the platform through that. They're just not allowed to use it on their on state-owned property. Um, of course, this is very dismissive of the downstream impacts of not being able to use the platform on state-owned property, which for many faculty means that they're having to curtail their research agendas um, and the work that they are doing in order to examine exactly what is going on on TikTok and uh, you know curtail what they can do in the classroom as well in terms of showing TikTok content or, or engaging with the platform. And it's just like totally sort of at odds with the purported rationale of like, if we want to know what's going on on TikTok, if we want to know what the trust and safety issues are, if we want to know, we should be having our leading academics uh, researching this platform and, and looking into it. And so uh, so I, I found this pretty uh, uncompelling. The, 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 the reasoning was, was very uh, abrupt and, and uh, superficial and didn't require sort of any proof of the state's data concerns. Um, but, but there you go. Uh, that has been uh, upheld in Texas. So it is a much narrower ban than the one we talked about in Montana, which, you know, was the ban of everyone using it. It was just state employees. But at the same time, it has been upheld. If you're looking for the latest research on anti-Semitism on TikTok, I can tell you where you won't see it from the University of Texas or Texas A&M. Right. So congratulations. It's a, I mean, it's a great point. Like Nikki Haley was ostensibly interested in knowing uh, the impacts yeah. of TikTok on its right. users. Where are you going to get good good studies about that? Uh, not from, from Texas. <laughs> right. Not from Texas. Uh, and, and so this really is just getting in the way of uh, getting the kind of information that these politicians say they're interested in. Yeah. And it's just also sad. I mean, Texas has one of the greatest public university systems in the country. I think that's a, a, one of the underlying things that underlies Texas's economic dynamism. Throwing that away of like a hundred years of investment in their public education system over these culture war issues seems incredibly stupid to me. Right. Interestingly, on the culture wars issue front, there was a new poll this week from Pew that said that the support for TikTok bans are, is rapidly falling. So roughly 38% of the US adults uh, said they supported a TikTok ban last uh, now, uh, down from about 50% in March. And I, I don't know what's leading that. I don't know if it's just sort of it, this has been out of the news. It hasn't been getting as much coverage. There hasn't been as much going on or whether, yeah, I, I don't know what would be driving that in particular, but it'll be interesting to see if the political window uh, has passed uh, after the uh, Shochu congressional hearing when it was sort of at its all-time high. Talking about congressional hearings, I can't resist uh, discussing YouTube magic dust for just a second. Perfect. So... I, I don't know how they do it, but Susan Wojcicki must have left some of the YouTube magic dust in the desk drawers for Neil Mohan uh, when she left, because again, uh, the platform seems to have ducked uh, a summons to come and appear at a hearing on the Hill about child safety. The Senate Judiciary Committee has set a hearing for January 31st into uh, to talk about child safety issues and Mark Zuckerberg is going to be there. TikTok CEO is going to be there. Also, Snap, Discord, and X are all going to be there. And you know who's not going to be there? The platform that like most kids uh, spend uh, most of their time on. The most time on. <laughs> so, uh, somehow, uh, the platform that dominates usage among uh, kids and teens has has uh, avoided being uh, called to to appear at this child safety hearing. It's remarkable. I am. I just got to be impressed at this stage. Uh, my long-standing campaign to get Susan Wojcicki to appear at the Hill alongside all the other 
other tech CEOs when we were having hearing after hearing um, failed miserably. She never appeared. And Neil Mohan also has not appeared yet in his role as CEO. Uh, and so the un, uh, the unbeaten trend uh, continues. So uh, good luck. Uh, good Congratulations, uh, YouTube. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, as a parent of teenagers, if I look at a screen that they're on, the most common thing I will see will be YouTube, right? So if you think YouTube's doing a bad job, then you should pull up there to yell at them. If you think they're doing a good job, then you should have them up there talking about what they're doing so that other people can learn from it and that you can celebrate it. There's no argument to have the most important platform for children not at a child safety uh, event. There's just no, you can't come up with a scenario where that makes any sense. Right. I can't explain it. The only, you know, it's somehow YouTube ducks all of this. I think it keeps its its head down. It manages to keep quiet. I think politicians themselves spend less time on YouTube than, but uh, it's amazing that but they, they don't they don't spend less time on TikTok. You're right. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, right. So somehow TikTok gets the notice. Like there's plenty of NyQuil chicken on YouTube as well, an equivalent. Right. So yeah, just gotta, gotta hand it to them. Meanwhile, uh, this week also, Wired had a great little story um, that I had seen reported much elsewhere, but I think is worth highlighting, that YouTube uh, has removed a snippet of code from its website that revealed which channels were part of its YouTube partnership program and thus could monetize their channels and receive uh, revenue sharing from the platform. And, you know, this this should be a really big deal. The fact that YouTube is now hiding this information from people knowing who's part of the program, who's able to receive money from the platform. We've talked a lot about how potentially, uh, we think, the platform should be held to a higher standard, to a, held to a higher responsibility for channels and for content when they are mon- giving money to support uh, those creators and that content rather than just um, other user-generated content. Um, and now we're not even going to be able to tell uh, as easily which channels and which content uh, is part of which bucket. So um, another uh, step back, another uh, step back in this trend that we're seeing away from transparency. All right. And over to uh, the oversight board to discuss uh, very quickly that the board, um, this is Meta's oversight board. It's a Supreme Court-like thing that we've talked about a number of times on this show. It has announced in the last week that it has taken up its first set of expedited cases to weigh in on the Israel-Hamas conflict, um, and they're going to deliver their decisions within the next 30 days. Um, These are two pieces of content. The first uh, is a video on Instagram showing the uh, aftermath of a strike uh, outside Al-Shifa Hospital. Uh, The second is a Facebook video showing Hamas taking hostages. Uh, Both of these videos were initially removed by the platform, but when the oversight board uh, selected them, Meta put them back up uh, and 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 gave them a warning screen. That is, in both cases, Meta has already reversed its original decision. And so these are both just instances where uh, the platform has already admitted that it made a mistake. I mean, the thing that I just am stuck on here is that this conflict has been going for over two months now. <laughs> um, and the board uh, wants a gold star for taking up an expedited case in December that it will release a decision within 30 days. So fast. Yeah, I know. Oh my God. My, my eyebrows are on fire. <laughs> These guys are moving so quickly. I'm really glad that the board is here to help us make sure that the the content we see about this highly charged and politicized uh, and fraught conflict isn't being uh, artificially sort of biased or, you know, um, uh, corrupted by uh, inadequate content moderation um, systems and safeguards. (laughs) When we get a decision in January, that'll really change our understanding of the conflict that we had back in October and November uh, as a result. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the news is that Biden is pushing Netanyahu to, to wrap up major conflict, major operations by the end of December. So this very likely could be after the entire war is over. Right. Uh, will be that they'll make a decision, a decision about a conflict in which the first content moderation decisions were literally made in like the first 30 seconds 
as people started to post videos and live streams of what was happening. Yeah, of course. We talked about this at length uh, many, many weeks ago about the the really important and difficult content moderation issues that this these kinds of conflicts raise. Um, and the board itself said that the, in the weeks after the conflict began, it was receiving almost three times the daily average of appeals from the region. And I, it's hard to, uh, to justify uh, waiting so long uh, to, to weigh in. I also think it's hard to sort of like they've rese- selected two cases that are about enforcement errors and not policy errors, um, it seems. And the oversight board, I think if it has a, a role to play, really can be talking about the policy decisions that the platforms are making, like that the Meta is making uh, and, the, and the values judgments that it's making. I don't know. And it'll be interesting to see based on the questions that they ask Meta, how much it's going to be able to talk about, you know, systemic issues, because one of the big concerns that we have about content moderation in the, in the region is that Meta is not devoting enough resources, that its classifiers aren't good enough, that its classifiers are biased against certain kind of content over other kinds of content. And I don't know if the board's the right kind of body to be making those kinds of uh, investigations, but we'll, we will have to see. I wish them luck. Uh, if, if it does come up with good information about that, that would be fantastic, but it won't be until the new year. So, Okay, over to the uh, Twitter corner. I mean, we discussed whether to even discuss this and decided. We need a sadder trombone. <laughs> yeah. I need like a... <laughs> we will take applications for the saddest trombones uh, that, you, that you have out there. Obviously, the, the thing that everyone's talking about, so we thought we should mention, um, is that Musk uh, has reinstated Alex Jones uh, on, the, on, on X this week. I don't know if I have anything insightful to say about this, except that it doesn't really seem like a great way to win back advertisers and dispel concerns uh, that you are anti-Semitic. But Alex, uh, any any more insightful thoughts on this? All I can say is that this was a situation where Musk publicly said he was not going to re- reinstate Alex Jones based upon his own personal tragedy of losing uh, a newborn and that newborn dying in his arms, which is like, as a parent... About the strongest promise you can make, right? <laughs> like this isn't him just tweeting, I'll never do this. This is him saying, based upon the memory of my of my dead child. And he's backed off. So I I, I don't know what's left for him as, as far as promises to break or expectations of that he's working off some kind of moral center here. I think this is the furthest that you could go. So I you know, there's a lot lots to be said about the the practical impact and such. I just find it incredibly sad. Yeah, that's basically where I am too. And I guess, you know, does suggest uh, the sort of futility of taking anything that he says uh, and reporting on any of his his promises or suggested plans about what he might do in the future with the platform or otherwise, because clearly his word is not worth much at all. All right. Okay. Over to the legal corner. We are really doing good on the sound effects this week. We are hitting all of the, this is your uh, holiday special. Okay, so a number of weeks ago, we discussed the fact that, so Trump is suing Media Matters over a story uh, that they wrote about anti-Semitic content on the platform. And we talked about how, you know, that's basically garden variety, musk, legal futility and um, immaturity and and uh, and just angst. But that the scary part of this was that as a result of this, government actors got involved in the game as well. And both Missouri and their then Texas with Ken Paxton uh, announced investigations into Media Matters sort of following on Twitter's uh, and, and X's uh, lawsuit, suggesting that they were coming after Media Matters as well. Um, as we discussed and predicted uh, in that conversation, Media Matters had a First Amendment, a possible First Amendment claim against uh, Ken Paxton for this kind of retaliation. Um, because, of course, when the Attorney General comes after you uh, for that has a chilling effect on your speech, but also it's a retaliation for Media Matters 
100 percent uh, First Amendment protected expression when it was writing a report, an article about what was happening on X. You know, the the Texas government apparently didn't like that and came after uh, Media Matters as a result. And that itself um, is a violation of the First Amendment. So I think this is a pretty strong claim and we will have to see uh, how, how it pans out. Um, but I'm really, really glad uh, to see that Media Matters is doing this because, you know, as, as we said, it is a pretty pretty big collapse of sort of democratic norms when you have government actors coming after media organizations, uh, regardless of what you think of their stories, simply because they don't like what those organizations are saying. Okay, so you're a First Amendment professor. You're, you're teaching a class on constitutional law next quarter. Is that correct? I am, a, yes. A, a class on the First Amendment. Correct. <laughs> Great. Okay, so we're going to do we're going to do reverse Socratic method here. Oh, no. So, Oh, Professor Dueck, Professor yes. of First Amendment Law. Uh-huh. Is it generally a First Amendment violation if a nonprofit or an academic group criticizes the speech of other people or of platform policies? Gosh, is that a violation of the First Amendment? This is really tricky. Does the government like the the platform that the that the media organization is is criticizing? Because that yes. is totally irrelevant. Uh, no, it is not a First Amendment <laughs> oh. violation. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then if somebody using state money and state power mm. tries to punish somebody yeah. for their criticism of a platform, is that a First Amendment violation? Right. And again, is it because the government doesn't like that organization? Because again, that's that's totally irrelevant. And yes, if it's because of the protected <laughs> speech, that is a First Amendment violation. <laughs> you following? It's uh, tricky. Is, I know it's really tricky, but yeah. c- c- can you follow? <laughs> yes. All and right. this has been Socratic Method Theater by Alex <laughs> and Evelyn. Yeah. If only uh, all of my... Uh, uh, all of my classes next semester uh, go go as smoothly, and the message is as clean and simple. Um, I feel like that would be a pretty easy test for you to give your students at the end. If those are the only two questions, like multiple choice, true or false, right? Uh, you'd get you'd give a lot of A's. Or I guess law schools don't give A's. Never mind. You, you, you'd give a lot of your super special snowflake grades uh, to those Stanford law gold students. stars for everybody. Uh, that's right. Um, yes, excellent. Uh, you know, speak while we're in the legal corner. Just to note that uh, the amicus briefs were filed in these net choice cases that are at the Supreme Court this this term uh, about the Texas and Florida laws, uh, where Texas uh, is is uh, trying to regulate uh, social media platforms for their anti-conservative bias. And the this is going to be, you know, the First Amendment Super Bowl. Uh, we're going to talk about it a lot next year, I'm sure. Um, but just to say that as a sign of how much uh, we and others are going to be talking about it, uh, 56 amicus briefs uh, were filed in the net choice cases this week. So uh, that is... Uh, that the, the, the court has a lot of friends, uh, it, it seems. I have had a chance to read through exactly zero of them. So I guess that's uh, that's my an early Christmas present um, and my holiday reading uh, is, is sorted for me. So thank you very much, everyone. Are, are we setting a deadline that by our first uh, podcast of 2024 that you'll have read all 56 and have it summarized? We, we are not. <laughs> no, because <then laughs> it's just, no. Uh, why, why would we? You hear it first, folks. Evelyn will have read and we'll have a summary uh, in our January podcast. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, I will be prepared to be quizzed on any of the uh, any of the 56 uh, right. 30 page briefs. We're on, looking on, forward to on it. On page 27. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, as, as you might be able to tell, Alex loves quizzing me uh, on things uh, on air, on li- live recording. I just feel you need uh, to understand what it's like to be on the other side of Socratic method, right? So that you have <laughs> compassion for the students who you, you nail in front of their uh, in front of their colleagues. Right. Well, I, I appreciate I appreciate this learning opportunity. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've learned a lot. I, I feel like the most important thing, is, Evelyn, is that you're listening. Oh, 
thank you. Um, do, I, do I get a gold star? <laughs> like, I just right. this after you now feel bad for men with beards uh, because <laughs> of your uh, of your chin issues. Um, That's right. Uh, I'm listening and learning every day, every episode, Alex. It's a, it's a real uh, it's a real privilege and a, and a pleasure. We will be back, uh, or we're going to try and be back once more before we break for the holidays. I don't know if you have any sports news or holiday news that you want to get off uh, get off your chest. Ho- holiday we... news? <laughs> no. Uh, Hanukkah's ending. It seems. <laughs> I, I hope people had a nice Hanukkah, and I hope people have a great Christmas and a happy New Year. There you go. There's my there's my news. All right, but but <laughs> but it's premature because we will uh, yes, hopefully we'll be again. in your yes, ears again uh, before. So that was the dry run. Uh, you will get an extra practiced Happy New Year wish uh, in the next episode. But for now, this has been your moderated content weekly update. Uh, this show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. Uh, this episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst extraordinaire at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and it is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Justin Fu and Rob Huffman. See you all shortly.